there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. No the doctor is in. What's up, Dr. Batar? We're here in New York City. You're not, but we're going to be together soon enough. Memorial Day weekend in Pasadena for the Advanced Medicine Conference. I'm excited, and I know you are, too. I definitely am, Robert. You know, it's interesting that uh, I don't – it's interesting that you're in New York right now. Can you hear all that noise in the background? I don't personally know. Oh my Super God. You hear any noise from Dr. Batar? There's a massive storm going on here. It's not even funny. I, I, I thought, I thought you were passing it? gas. I can barely hear you. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll have to yell yeah. at him. We can't yell at you. We don't want to rat out the speakers here, so we'll do our level best. Well, hopefully it's working better now, so um, we'll see what's happening. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, obviously. And, uh, Leanna, are you going to be there? Oh, um, you know, I was planning on that. I remember messaging you about it a while ago. I would love to. That would be awesome. Yeah, it would be so awesome. I I said I I owe you making my chocolate balls. That's right. That's right. And, and so <laughs> I haven't forgotten. There'll, there'll only be, I don't know how many people that are going to be at the conference, but, you know, it's going to be, my intention is to have a lot more than, than well, it'll be between 1,000 and 5,000 people. I have no idea. I think we're set, we're set up for 1,500 people, but they said they can expand if we need to, and we don't want to hold tickets off or anything. So you may have to bring a lot of chocolate balls. That's, that's Wow. Yeah. Wow, I'm going to need a lot of cacao powder. Well, as long as I feed you, Dr. Batar, then that's that's the priorities. We're very priorities. easy. <laughs> the, yeah, the way to the, the to happy doctor is through his belly. That's right. And uh, she's been feeding me delicious organic snacks in the first hour of the show, and I made Super Don talk while I'm chewing. Oh, that's awesome. That's what that's that's smart. So check out <laughs> check out. Uh, she's got a new book coming out in two weeks called Cancer Free for, uh, with Food. And you're credited in there. I think she consulted with you on some of the information that she reveals. And can you read what yes. you wrote to Dr. Batar in I, the book? I wrote this. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Batar. You are so strong and so full of love! Exclamation mark. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Yay! I yes. for that. That's nice. Especially nice coming from you, Leanna. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Exactly. So now, is there anything you want to hit first? Because we've got a few stories that I definitely want to talk to you about today doing advanced medicine with you. But, uh, you know, open up because we didn't get a chance to talk earlier today. I've been out and about uh, tra travailing or traveling through New York City here. And uh, I'm just ready to go advanced medicine any direction you want. Robert, I'm, uh, I'm ready in any which way you want to go to. I'm trying to figure out how to get go live on Instagram right now. I don't think it's going to end up going. But uh, anyway, I'm ready. I'm ready whenever you are. Okay, so here's our first story, and this, this goes to uh, the heart of science, so to speak, if there is a heart in science, and how uh, we've talked about, for instance, and you've been very direct on this, like if you were proposing a research, um, um, I, you know, any type of research, whether it be a double-blind study on drugs or whether it be a research into causative agents for an ailment or an illness, let's just say you were investigating autism and the term mercury comes up. You would not get funded. In fact, if it got published, they would they would they would pull it from the publications as soon they as it came out. They would rescind it. Yeah. yeah, they would rescind it. Now it's happened not just with mercury but aluminum. Our friend Chris Exley, Professor Exley, PhD, brilliant man, and he did the recent study analyzed 
the brains of autistic children. These are children who had passed on, mm -hmm. and he found higher levels of aluminum than even, even patients that had Alzheimer's, advanced stage Alzheimer's. Now, yeah. we're not going to say it's only aluminum because we know mercury is the number one issue, but we're not also saying aluminum is, mm -hmm. is a beneficial metal in the brain. And they've recently stopped funding anything related to his work because of what it was revealing. Well, you know, um, back about, I don't remember how long ago it was, but probably about seven, eight years ago, if you remember the research, the new research that came out about uh, copper, and they were talking about how they thought copper was going to be associated with, um, with Alzheimer's, with the Alzheimer's lesions and, and the, the plaque lesions that, there was all sorts of different research coming out, and it was about, I talked to Boyd Haley, it was about copper, and they didn't mention anything about mercury, so I thought that was kind of curious, so I talked to Boyd about this, and, you know, what was interesting is what he said, he said that the, the problem is that any research, as we've talked about, that's related to mercury, they're just going to uh, boycott it anyway, and the researcher that was doing the research on, on the Alzheimer's brains at that point recognized that the same chelator that, uh, that binds to mercury is also going to bind to copper. So he oriented his research towards the copper, knowing that if they started treating copper, they would, or copper, copper toxicity, they would end up actually intend, unintentionally, inadvertently taking out the mercury too. So it was almost like the researcher even knew that by publishing the data re regarding mercury would prevent it from being published. But if you talk about copper, it would work. The same key, key uh, the side effects actually of effective mercury detoxification is that you bind to copper. So that's one of the things we have to kind of keep an, keep an eye on. So I'm not surprised with this aluminum thing now. They're probably getting wise to it. Um, you know, you heard me talk about aluminum enough to say that, yes, aluminum may be an issue, but it's nothing like mercury. Nothing causes denudation of the neurofibrils like mercury does, okay? Only mercury and lead have been shown in studies to decrease uh, IQ levels. You know about the lead studies. A couple of lead studies have showed uh, low levels of uh, lead increasing IQ levels, but um, nothing causes denudation like mercury. So anything else that they're talking about, that brings attention. Um, now I think that they've done a good enough job of ostracizing mercury from the literature and how they're probably going to start working at other metals. I think, Dr. Batar, on the issue of, of, of aluminum specifically, again, because it comes back to the vaccines, is why they have to shut it down. Yeah. Remember, in America, and I think maybe one or two other countries, they uh, recommend the hepatitis B vaccine, mm -hmm. which is, as far as I know, uh, aluminum laden, not so much mercury laden, although some of the base components of it might contain residual mercury. I haven't looked into it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they now are seeing mercury, I'm sorry, aluminum being added as an aggravator to the immune system, the adjuvant that it is, mm -hmm. that they can't hide from the link uh, aluminum and then back to vaccines. So anything to shield them from vaccines being the focus of attention on any brain or neurological uh, disease is what they're concerned about. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I think it's only going to get worse as time goes on because as more and more literature comes out, as more research is being done, and as more people become aware of, you know, the, the various components that are that we're talking about here—not just mercury, but some of these other substances that are used as adjuvants in vaccines—there's going to be more pressure to stop publications on any of these other substances. So I'm not surprised by that at all. So, folks, the funding issue—you got to understand that the money is controlled through at least in America, and it may be true around other areas or agencies around the world, through government sources of these fundings. Now, there may be some private uh, public uh, partnerships, but who has the money in private when it comes to dietary supplements, organic foods, things like that? No, it's coming primarily from 
big pharma and they control the research strings and the doctors, PhDs, the researchers learn pretty quickly what will get them funding and what will get them shut down and fired. And so the control via the purse strings is very real here. And Chris Exley has done excellent scientific work and observation and publication beyond reproach. And suddenly now they're pulling all of his funding. We've talked about other researchers that have had their funding pulled simply for investigating the wrong thing. Wrong for who? Wrong for what? Those interests, those moneyed interests that don't want you to look at the real cause of these damaging uh, you know, ailments, illnesses, degradations like, again, mercury and now aluminum. And, and Robert, I think that if you look at some of the other things that are out there, uh, copper is probably one of the ones that's going to be next in line. And who, who knows what else they're going to be talking about. But it's, it's not going to be isolated to aluminum here. I think you're going to see uh, aftermath affecting many other minerals. So yeah. I'm but surprised you, they're not doing something like this with silver and selenium. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, I think that... Um, Anything, first and foremost, you know their priority is vaccine. It's like the, as I've talked about, the sacrament in their church. It is like if we lose that, we lose almost everything. Because as you know, and I know we've discussed this for years, that is a, the first damaging insult primarily in all newborns, in the West particularly, that kind of facilitates this lifelong dependence on pharmaceutical intervention through the allopathic medical monopoly. Yeah. And it's, it's something that... Um it brings to mind Andrew, 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 Andy Andrews. That's it. Andy Andrews' book. Um, some of his books, he talks about this misinformation campaign. And so it all comes back down to misinformation, uh, misdirection, and intentional uh, causing distractions so that people don't really understand what the real issues are. Right. Yeah. So again, funding, money. I again. It's not that we're money hungry here. You know that we get by on a shoestring often, but you know that's part of what you have to do to make, you know, make things and make ends meet, so to speak. But in research science, if you're not funded, you're not working. Yep. And if the, you know, those that fund you say, if you go that way, we're not giving you money. You pretty quickly say, so this goes to the heart. And Dr. Batar, sometimes people will still say this. If what you guys say is real, everybody would know about it. It'd be in every journal and every, I mean, it's not to say there isn't good science being done. We spotlight, but by and large, it's suppressed. Or if it makes it into the journals, they'll pull them. That's exactly right. You know, in, we've talked about this before. It just was, I was just having a discussion about this earlier on today, and it comes down to the same thing every time. He who dictates, uh, he who controls a narrative dictates history. So, the information, whoever's got the platform, whoever has the control of the media, whoever can uh, manipulate how information is disseminated, they will, by definition, control whatever the narrative is, and they dictate how the story is going to be remembered. And if we remember that, you know, um, look at some of the wars and look at the, from a historical perspective. If you looked at this from the Mayan perspective as opposed to the Spanish perspective of how, you know, the Mayans were... In other words, everything gets altered based upon who's left standing. And I think that the vaccine issue is going to be, it's going to be interesting what's going to happen because I think that the potential where this is going, and especially like with the measles outbreak now, um, I don't know whether Super Don sent me the stories and I don't know if really covering that at all, but now they're saying that the largest epidemic of measles in the last two decades is currently occurring right now, and they're attributing that to the anti-vaxxers, what they say the anti-vaxxers are doing. 
you know, it's, it'll be interesting how that how that entire narrative is remembered. So we'll see. Yeah, in Rockland County uh, this weekend, we covered it with Mike Adams over the weekend and Alan Phillips, the vaccine rights attorney in North Carolina. The North Carolina, uh, uh, it's like the State Board of Medicine when they went after Dr. Batar, the bar, which is their equivalent of a regulatory uh, agency uh, issued a monopoly by the state to the practice of law, going after Alan Phillips. He's the one one attorney among many, but really not that, that does what he does across the spectrum. He's helping people in everywhere to uh, deal with these so-called mandates. How do you how do you get exemptions? How do you deal with uh, family issues like that? College, going into college, even military issues on vaccines. And they're going after him in a very illegal way based on them. It'd be like, Dr. Batar, if they came to you and said, we think you've done something wrong. Let's see all your patient files. And well, we're all just going to review them at the board, you know, in violation of HIPAA and everything. And that's basically what they're doing to him as a lawyer. But this is what they did in 1999. They came to my office. They had no complaints. And they said, okay, um, we want to randomly take 10 charts from your office and inspect them. That's a good. And apparently, by statute at that time, they were protected by being able to do something like that. Um, I'm not sure if that changed or not. But, I mean, I think it's kind of absurd. You know, we, we just want to come and inspect you. This is like one of the board attorneys actually doing – I forgot to tell you this, but uh, I think we talked about this in private. But this is like one of the board attorneys – when he told the judge during the process when we went to block the medical board's action in Superior Court, and the attorney said, I don't know, Judge, why Dr. Bittar is making such a big deal out of it, um, why he should be looking looking uh, forward to the um, opportunity to explain his practice of medicine to the board. And the, the judge is like looking down, reading some papers, right? And he looks up and pulls his bifocals down, and he looks at the attorney and says, yeah, that's like the bar association knocking on your door and you welcoming the opportunity to explain your practice of law, right? Shut up and sit down. Nice. That's like dead on. Exactly. And that's what they're doing to uh, Alan Phillips. I mean, they're just saying, give us all your records. We think you've done something. Like, and, and you know what? They're trying to claim he's practicing law in other states. But that's you don't have jurisdiction in North Carolina to say that. You'd have to go to those states and they'd have to bring up charges. It's like it's ridiculous because, again, what has he done that's so heinous? He's helping families, families with children, you know, to, to exempt lawfully and legally right. out of this horrendous, heinous act of injecting toxic poisons that much of the world apparently still believes in. But again, they believe in it, not based on scientific merit, but based on it's just been programmed into you. You just take it and shut up. Brainwashing. Yes. Yeah. And did you say that, that he's a North Carolina attorney? Yes, he's in North Carolina. Huh. That's interesting. You should connect with him. You would like him. He's a he's his own bulldog. He's standing up against the the bad guys almost on his own. We we talked about it so people would plug in on Sunday's show. We had Mike Adams on. We had him on, and uh, really, there's some good stuff working that in that way. But he's still kind of on his own, and not many lawyers are 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 courageous enough to stick their heads up and go, you know what, what you're doing to him is wrong. Hmm. Well, that's one of the things that um, I, I'm surprised that nobody else is doing anything with him or, or for him. Or helping him, but um, I would like to get his contact information. Let's see what we can we can reach out to them. Reach out to them. Yeah, Super Don, if you can take Sunday's broadcast and send it to Doctor Batara, I, I think if he's local there, he might be able to connect with uh, Alan as well. Because sure. again, it's, it's, he's like a brother on this journey to do the right thing in, 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 in spite of all the opposition and all the power being on the other foot, so to speak. And he's not backing down. So we respect him immensely for that. Absolutely. And if there's anything we can do to help, that's we should do that. 
Now, we have another story here. This is interesting, and this goes back to your soldiering days, too, because you were also uh, in the military, and um, it relates to an Army soldier. And the Army said this guy was faking his health issues. And guess what? It turns out he wasn't. He was suffering with chronic lead poisoning. I don't know if Super Don sent you this article, but this is rather interesting because obviously what does it lead to in terms of remediation? Well, first, it's interesting to note that a lot of the studies that were initiated regarding heavy metal toxicity and some of the earlier EDTA studies, in fact, the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, they were doing a big chelation study there, if I remember correctly, back in like early 2000s. This is before the NIH study was funded. So Walter Reed was doing some research on EDTA therapy for lead toxicity and some of the other heavy metal toxicities. And the military has always been somewhat in, on the forefront when it comes to seeing how certain types of environmental conditions uh, affect soldiers. So they look at biological agents, they look at toxic agents. Um, I'm surprised that uh, this issue with him was that they thought it was faking it. I have not read the story, Robert, like usual. But probably, <laughs> but probably it's not so much the military thought it was faking it. It's probably the doctors that were doing the workup just weren't familiar with heavy metal toxicity. Um, and, and, you know, he ended up having lead toxicity. But I do know that the Army as a whole has been more proactive at looking at how some of these environmental issues will impact soldiers, especially toxic and, and um, biological agents. So this guy, 30 years of age, he was back in the Army for the second time, and he served as an enlisted soldier prior to that and, uh, you know, was in one of the, in the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And he's like a maximum physical fitness specimen, as they say. I mean, this guy's special forces, right? He was selected for that. And in 05, he began experiencing wild swings in blood pressure, other symptoms, crippling nausea, constant dizziness, skyrocketing heart rate. Given a diagnosis of common high blood pressure, and for a while he felt better by keeping him on medication. But after deployment, the nausea came back, migraine, abnormal thirst, muddied thinking, on and on and on. And, you know, they're like mystery disease. For some of these physicians, they don't acknowledge it. I would also add into the mix, and they don't mention that in this article because it's the New York Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. How many experimental vaccines did those soldiers get on top of whatever lead that they did identify in this guy? Right. So the first thing is... Um does it say what group he was with by any chance? I'm um, looking here. Hopkins, retired, major, now lives in Fort Washington, Maryland. Um, oh, he went through Walter Reed. I don't see the original um, uh, group he was with. He just said he was selected for special forces training. Okay, so he probably didn't, he wasn't, he probably didn't serve with any SF units. But so I can tell you that um, it's, if you're SF, you know, or your ranger or, you know, with the Marines, if you're a long range recon or, you know, the Navy or SEAL operation, all the, all the special operations command teams, these guys are not the type that malinger. They're not the type that will say, I'm having a problem. If anything, you got to be overly cautious because these people are what we in the military usually refer to as high speed, low drag. They will lie so that they can go into whatever situation they need to go to, if, even if they've got a, an injury or something that prevents them from being deployed, they will lie about it just so they can be deployed. So they're not the type that say, oh, I'm, I'm having a problem, I'm, I'm, I'm having this issue or that issue. They're the ones that are going to actually, you know, make the effort that's necessary to, to enter into that uh, combat arena, whatever the case is. 
So from that perspective, right away, you know, you wouldn't think that this guy is malingering. Secondly, when you start dealing with things such as heavy metals, you have to remember that conventional testing will not disclose if there's a problem with this, right? Conventional testing will reveal um, blood serum levels of X, Y, and Z, and, you know, looking at chemistries and everything else, the doctor's going to look at it and say, oh, well, everything looks normal, which is typical. That's, that's a normal response. And then usually they'll get prescribed an antidepressant because hey, you must be depressed because the person's not feeling well. Of course, if you don't feel good, you're going to be depressed, especially when the doctors that are supposed to be appointed to safeguard you can't find out what's wrong with you. And so this is where the issue lies, right? Um, the first thing is they don't, they're either not equipped to diagnose or they don't know how to, how do you expect somebody to turn over a stone and look underneath it when they don't even recognize a stone is a stone to be turned over, right? So that's the first issue. And then secondly, um, when when the stone is turned over, they don't have the tools, they don't have the knowledge base, they don't have the resources to then understand what they're looking at and how to test for it. So it's unfortunate that um, if if the standard was out there to check people routinely for this, they would start seeing many of these issues that people should be aware of. That's one reason, if you remember, Heavy Metal Toxicity, The Hidden Killer, the DVD that we put out. That's what we call it, The Hidden Killer, because I believe this is an endemic situation right now on the planet. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Batar, in this article, it's interesting. They say that the physicians still are under the impression that the lead is in the bones only and doesn't circulate, doesn't impact any other system. And so when they see this and they see all these symptoms, they say, no, that's not the lead. It's not that. And they even reference uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, director of the Center of Functional Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, and he's saying that whole concept of the lead not being elsewhere but the bones is wrong. Well, I'm, I'm actually amazed that they would even start talking about how, how the hell did the lead get to the bones? I mean, how do they explain that? It's a storage place. Lead gets stored in the bones. So to say oh, it's only in the bones and not anywhere else, how did, how did it magically go from the external environment bypass everything else, all the other tissues and systems, and then go directly into the bone. Mm-hmm. I mean, are we, are we seriously that stupid that we're going to say that it just somehow transformed and, and somebody beamed him from beamed the lead from outside into the bones? Right. It had to have gone through the body, right? So, yes, there are certain storage areas of the body. There's, there's certain tissue that have a propensity for sequestering and storing certain types of components. It's stored within fat tissue. That's one reason... You find it within the brain because it's predominantly fat. And you also find it in the myocardium, but that's also because it's the a lot of fat that's insulating the heart. So you find mercury. In fact, you find, for example, uh, cadmium within the lung parenchyma. Okay, It has, it has a preponderance for the lung parenchyma. You have lead that, that will, you'll find prevalent in bone, but it's because mm-hmm. it's where the body is storing these things. It's not because that's the only way, place you find it. That's the only place it goes to. No. It's being stored. The body's trying to get these substances out of circulation. And so whenever you do blood testing, you really don't see any of this stuff. Why? Because the body's trying to treat it just like you would your mother-in-law's, you know, fruitcake. You hide it underneath the bed. You put it in the basement. You're trying to get, get it out of, you know, get it out of the system. And that's what the body's doing. It's trying to prevent the damage from occurring. So it'll put it into whichever area it can. And it just so happens that it goes into bone. By the way, Dr. Batar, uh, they say he's a de- detachment commander. Company name was the U.S. Army 7th Special Forces Group, yeah. Fort Bragg, North Carolina, so not far from you. Yeah, yeah, 7th Group, okay, yeah. I was with 5th Group myself, so anyway, this is, um, 
I, I figured that as soon as you said that he was SF, you know, these guys don't, they don't fake stuff. I mean, it's just not. No, no, gosh, no. I, I, the, the, that they would say this, it's only, uh, I think, a discrediting of their own abilities as physicians to acknowledge what you've said for many years and other physicians that actually know this stuff. Hopefully you got treated. Yeah, that. they said that, that they are now treating certain of these soldiers with, guess what, intravenous chelation. Yeah. Well, EDTA um, is available and is every single doctor on the planet has been exposed to EDTA. They, they see it every day. They don't even know it. So EDTA, ethylene-diamine tetracetic acid, is actually what's inside the purple top tubes when you collect uh, a red blood cell, when you do a RBC test, right, when you do a, for a hemoglobin hematocrit, they have EDTA in the bottom of that vial so that it doesn't, so the blood doesn't coagulate. And the reason is, is because it binds to the calcium and prevents the blood from clotting, right? So in every emergency room for acute lead toxicity, that is a, the treatment. It's EDTA treatment, and it's an intravenous infusion. Now, as soon as you add other substances to it and you do it in the outpatient level, uh, outpatient you know, practice, they call it chelation. If you're doing it inside the hospital in an emergency room setting, just the EDTA being infused, you know, they'll charge you a couple thousand dollars to do that in the emergency room. Now you take it out of the emergency room, you add some other supportive substances to it, you do an outpatient setting and you do it in a private practice, now they call it chelation, uh, although reducing it by 90% of the cost. Now it's controversial. Same treatment, same active ingredient, but now it's controversial. Dr. Batar, let me ask you, from your uh, military experience, Army experience as well, you know, I bring up always these these vaccinations or pin cushions. And, and, you know, if they're not needled, then they're air gunned into these people. I don't know how much lead is in it. We talk mercury, aluminum, other things. But is it possible that they're absorbing it from munitions? If they fire enough lead-based bullets, are they absorbing it through the skin? Or are they breathing it through, you know, the exhaust of these of their firearms? What do you think that? Well, it's very possible um, that you see a lot of this a lot of lead and a lot of mercury in combustion of fossil fuels. So if they're around a lot of vehicles, yes, that could be one of the things. I don't know about the munition aspect, but um, because there's not that much munition exposure. I mean, there is, you know, you, you live fire and all this stuff, but you, you, most people aren't doing that all the time. Um, with SF, maybe more so. I, I still don't know whether that would be sufficient, Robert. Uh, but I think the vaccine issue is something that we have to really look at because what you and I know as vaccinations, those are the standard dosages of the standard substances being, being uh, these soldiers being inoculated with, but it's actually not. They're being inoculated with a lot of experimental things too. You and I have talked on and off the air with, about Garth Nicholson, and he was the director for the laboratory division at MD Anderson in Houston for many years. And Garth Nicholson uh, wrote that book, uh, Project Daylily, where he talks about all the experimentation that was done on soldiers. And in Harris County, in Houston, there were many, many soldiers that were treated. Um, and, and actually, I'm sorry, not soldiers, but, um, well, they were doing experimental soldiers, but it was also on uh, prisoners in Harris County prison system. And you remember the story I told you about the, the doctor in MD Anderson who was involved with the research with Garth Garth. Yes, yeah, and I remember it, that. Yeah, and so basically he was going to divulge all this stuff. He, he thought it was ethically incorrect for what they were doing, and he was going to expose it. And then he committed suicide, strangely enough, in his office in the hospital. The only problem was that the entry wound um, was supposedly 
in the back of his head and the exit wound was in the front of his head and people don't commit suicide like this. So, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the military and, and even in that movie, let's see, it's, um, it's the one where Jamie, Jamie Foxx is a drill sergeant. I can't remember. I think it's called uh, Jarhead. And in that movie, there's a scene where they're giving out an oral pill that all the soldiers have to take. So it's not just vaccines being injected in, you know, soldiers are having to take stuff in all the time. And they were, to, they were ordered to take the stuff and they're inspected because they knew a lot of the soldiers didn't want to take it because they'd feel sick afterwards. So they have them open their mouth, they throw in the pills, then they inspect the mouth to make sure they're swallowed. And then the drill sergeant goes down to the next one. And in this movie, you know, he's getting his mouth inspected. Jamie Foxx moves down to the next soldier, next soldier. And, the, and uh, whatever the name of the actor is, you know, turns down and he spits it out. Well, it's because the soldiers recognized just from observation with other soldiers that were taking these substances that they were getting sick. And, of course, they don't want to take it. And, of course, the vaccination, same thing. So, Well, and they're administering it as if they're all physicians and they're just soldiers telling other soldiers to take a medication well, that has a effect for safety or efficacy or specific to each individual's uh, you know, needs or uh, maybe weaknesses in terms of methylation we've talked about. Interestingly okay. enough, Superdon sent me a, a paragraph from this article. It says, lead exposure, known hazard of military service. The U.S. Armed Forces have fired billions of rounds of ammo containing the toxic material. Again, they're focusing on lead and ammo. And I think this is a distraction. I yeah, There can be absorption through other means, even uh, perhaps cutaneous. I don't know what measure of that is, but if they're focusing only on munition and not talking about heavy metals from vaccines, again, to me, it's another distraction. Yeah. Well, I, I think that also these soldiers, when they're taking this stuff, they're being ordered, right? The, the drill sergeants are being ordered to tell them to take it. So don't want to don't want to misrepresent. Also, they're not just soldiers treating soldiers. They're being ordered by military directive, you know, assuming it's somebody in the hospital chain of command that's given out the order and the, and the whatever the unit commander is and, you know, mandates. Right. So the point is though, it shouldn't be done. Yeah. So Liana, of course, uh, here with us, um, making us look much better than we do normally. <laughs> Very pretty. Uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking the same thing. You know, Liana sitting next to you, you know, it's, it's not fair because it makes you a lot more um, appealing to, to look at. A lot at more appealing, <laughs> exactly. Normal, so. Yeah, then you have to come and join me next time just to make it even. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right. See, that Robert's got Bell. I usually can't look at him, but when Leanna's right there, it's, oh, it's much nicer on the eyes. So do you have a question for Dr. Batar? As we're talking about some serious oh, you know, issues, yeah, of course, here. Uh, Dr. Batar, what do you think about absorbing heavy metal toxicity like mercury and lead with drinking bentonite clay? Because that's known as like a natural... Uh, so to absorb it, chelated out? To absorb it, Yeah. So are you saying from the bentonite or to treat the treat to, the, to drink bentonite clay to, daily to help to attract those the heavy metal toxicity in the body to draw it out of the body? Well, the problem is there's, there's a lot of natural substances that are out there like zeolites and cilantro and some of these things. And of course, bentonite clay is acting from it as an astringent type basis. The problem is that anything that naturally occurs that will pull metals out. This is, this is the first issue. Um, Anything that naturally binds to metals, the problem is that when you take it, it's already bound to metals. We actually did analysis on three different cilantro supplements, and they all had way, way higher levels of mercury in the supplement itself. Because you got to remember, they're natural concentrated. They're not chelators. 
because the chelator by definition goes into the system, comes out of the system exactly the same way. So cilantro is obviously going to be utilized by the body from a nutritional basis, but it still binds to metals. It's, 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 a, it's a concentrator, if you will. The problem is when you get the cilantro and then you test it, it's already naturally sequestered the mercury out of the environment. So when you're taking it, you're actually taking a higher concentration of mercury into your body, thinking that you're going to be binding to the mercury. But in actuality, it's already bound to all this mercury naturally occurring when it's grown. The only way to use cilantro from a, from a metal binding standpoint would be if it's grown in a Petri dish in a laboratory environment where you can control it. Now, bentonite clay, again, all these things, they're, they're binding to these substances um, in, a, in whichever vector we can get to. So when you're dealing with heavy metals, especially let's use, since we talk about mercury, for example, the part of mercury that we can access is the part of mercury that's bound to the terminal end of the protein. So mercury binds to sulfhydro groups, and sulfhydro groups are these bonds that allow the protein to hold its configuration in a way so it's functional. So the morphological structure of a protein, if you look at the diagram, it's actually like looks like a big ball of yarn. But the way it's being held in that structure allows that protein to work the way it is. And if it's not being held in that structure and you unravel that ball of yarn, it loses its morphological integrity and it's no longer functional as that protein. It's not just a long sequence of amino acids, a big peptide chain, right? Well, that's the way it holds its morphological structure is by these sulfhydro groups. These sulfhydro groups are binding. Um, think of them as like building blocks and they hold that uh, ball of yarn in that special special morphological structure. Now, mercury will bind and the only one that we can really access one that's hanging off the terminal end, the, the terminal end of the protein, all right? So there's all these other sulfhydro groups in the internal portion, but we can't access it. Now, if we did access it, which there are certain substances that can, that can access it, and why do we want to access it? Because that's where the mercury is hanging on to. So we want to access the mercury to pull it out. Well, if you look at something like British analucite, it's a very, very potent chelator. It goes into the protein and binds to the, that mercury on the sulfhydro groups and pulls it out. The only problem is that by binding to it, it causes a disruption in those sulfhydro groups and breaks them. When it breaks them, it causes the protein to unravel. That's why British analucite is a great chelator, but you have a 20% mortality rate, meaning one out of five people that take it will die. So you don't want to treat somebody and have a chance of 20% that you're going to kill them because it is very, very effective at binding to mercury, but it causes the proteins to denature, to, to unravel, right? Well, so couldn't, Dr. Batar, the mercury itself cause... Uh, protein deformations if it's in excess of what can be bound by the sulfhydryl groups? Well, then you're talking about oxidative injury and the, uh, another component of how mercury could be damaging. But I'm just talking about mercury that's not causing damage by its own, um, by, by the oxidative aspect, but just the ability to access the mercury right now. Because mercury sure. can be everywhere. I mean, the, the more the mercury, you know, it's going to be everywhere. So we can only access the terminal end of the protein the sulfhydro group there that's kind of like hanging off like a tail, and the, and the chelator comes in, binds to it, and pulls it off. Now, things like bentonite clay and some of those things, they, they don't have a sufficient um, binding coefficient to pull the mercury away from that terminal end of the protein. You need something that's going to be a big gun, like a chelator. Even EDTA wouldn't do it, it even though it has pretty good propensity to bind to mercury. It can't do it. DMPS does. British Lewisite does. It'll bind to that mercury, pull it off that vector, and now you can actually see a uh, things like uh, glutathione, you know, glutathione is uh, glutamine, it's, it's glut, glutamine, cyst glutamic acid, cysteine, glycine, glutamic acid. That's what glutathione, sorry, I just had a 
You got too okay, much in that brain to get out there that quickly. Yeah. Love so that. Cysteine, well, cysteine, glycine, and glutamic acid form that glutathione, and, and that actually is a great mopping up agent for mercury. The problem is that if it's by itself, and people say, well, I took glutathione you know, before my dental procedure, so that's chelating it. It won't. It will not do it. We've done studies in our own office where we've done glutathione drips, done pre- and post-mercury uh, challenges, and there's no change in mercury. Then we'll give a chelator. We'll check the mercury levels and mercury levels have gone up. And then we give glutathione right after the chelator and you see even a higher level of uh, mercury in the urine. That's because the glutathione now acts up as a, as a mopping up agent, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sufficiently strong enough to bind to the metal and pull it off the terminal end of the protein, but it is sufficient that once it's been pulled off the terminal end of the protein, now it can actually be sequestered because it's broken, it's free, flow, uh, free flowing, it's loose. And now the glutathione can bind to it and now it can be helped to be eliminated that way. Hopefully that makes sense. Maybe that was yeah. technical. I, I think you've just uh, basically hurt us with your intelligence at this point. <laughs> that was a great answer. Also, Dr. Bittar, I thought you might find this fascinating is um, a, a friend of mine um, last week, I could smell like this metal around him. And I was like, ha- um, I was like, you know, have you been tested for heavy metal toxicity? And he's like, actually, I just got my blood work done and I do have um, toxicity. So I feel like we can smell it on people if, um, you know, especially if they're, they're sweating. I feel like we can smell it if they have too much metals in the system. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There are, there's a certain smell uh, after chelation, especially with a toxic person. And, and a lot of people that are getting chelation will say that how strong their urine smells. And it's a very metallic smell, mm-hmm. um, very unpleasant smell. And that's because of the heavy metals that are coming out. So yeah, absolutely. You can, you can smell it. I thought it was just like an Aboriginal outback trick that you brought from Australia, how to smell people with <laughs> heavy metal toxicity. <laughs> well, you know, they have, they have dogs, you know, um, I used to raise dogs, um, black German shepherds. I still do actually, but just a, a little bit of the side. And we used to train the dogs for certain things. And so they have cadaver drugs and drug dogs and all these different types of dogs. And we were actually in the process of training a dog to be able to smell cancer because again, they're, powers of smell you know their olfactory senses are so superior they can smell one part of urine in a million parts of water you can take one part of urine put it in water a million parts of water and then have another bowl with just 100 percent water and the dog will go to the water that doesn't have the one drop of or one part of urine because again they're going to go for people the aren't that water. smart they're drinking pool water exactly exactly but the thing i mean the dogs will still drink that water but the point is they're given a choice they're going to go to the water <laughs> And so we were going to actually train them to, to detect cancer. And we were working on that so to get because a patient that has cancer has a different smell. And heavy metals would be another type of thing. In fact, it would be an interesting, very inexpensive way of testing people because a dog can be, you know, it'll cost a lot of money to get the dog trained. But once the dog's trained, the cost of testing would be nothing. You know, the dog just walks by people. And when he smells somebody that has a problem, he sits down. I mean, it, it would be pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, listen, yeah. we're going to take a break. Real quick one, Dr. Batar. I want you to, if you get a chance to review the next article I want to cover with you, it goes to the heart of the law of the terrain. Guess yeah. what? Medical science baffled, mystified by this mysterious infection. It's drug resistant everywhere. And uh, we're going to talk with Dr. Batar about it because it is Advanced Medicine Monday. You get links at show notes at robertscottbell.com and we can take you to advancedmedicine.com. 
and all of the amazing information through the IADFW. We're going to talk about the Advanced Medicine Conference coming up as well, because if you haven't got your tickets, you're rapidly running out of time. It's coming up Memorial Day weekend in Pasadena. So stick with us. We're going to talk about this mysterious, that's not mysterious to us, but to the rest of the medical mafia and media. Uh, we'll cover that with Dr. Batar next, and we'll be back in uh, just a brief moment. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. You're amazing. You are something else. Robert Scott Bell. Bell. She has both style and substance. Robert Scott Bell. 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 How much power do talk radio hosts really have? This is transforming. Do we have to hear that? or? The Robert Scott Bell Bell Show. Talk about a breather. It's just a brief breather. Our only break this hour, I believe, before we're going to wrap up in, a, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so. We might have some bonus time with Dr. Batar if he's got time. And that's what we call sometimes extra innings in baseball season. Uh, Liana Werner, great. Do you know about baseball? You heard about baseball <laughs> or only cricket? I went to my first game uh, last year. Okay. But I have right. to say, I do love cricket. Cricket? Yeah. Love a good I go game. to I go to a good nap. Cricket, go for a nap, right? Immediately. <laughs> Some people say that about baseball. Dr. Bittar, again, uh, drbuttar.com as well as advancedmedicine.com. His book, international bestseller, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Again, he was consulted on uh, The Cancer Free with Food by Liana Werner Gray, the new book, and she thanked him as well. And I, helped a little bit, but uh, we're glad to do that because you're reaching a whole new generation about, you know, food is medicine. And yes, thank you. Uh, Dr. Batar, again, we're having a Am I going to get a copy of that book, an autographed copy, Leanna? Absolutely. So? Yes, I'll have to sign one for you. Okay, good. <laughs> for sure. I come with some chocolate. Is that the book that, that we did an interview in there? Yes, exactly. It is, it is in there. Okay. Yep. This is the book. Yep. Very cool. Very so, cool. Did the editors not cut me out? Well, you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to check because we actually cut half the book. So now oh, that's bonus yeah. material for people who pre-order because it was 140,000 words when I handed it in and th look how thick it is. And they were oh, like, no, nah, uh, it can't be that. So, thick. But the thing is, if it cut it all, you have unedited or the full interview available for those who buy the book online, you're making it available. Exactly. Yeah. Everything that's cut is a bonus for people who pre-order. So cool. people still get to read it. Nice. Mm -hmm. Great. That's yeah. Cause fun. it's very valuable content that we had to cut. Yeah. So, what do you think, Dr. Batar? What is this mysterious new infection? Do you see that article there? Super Don sent it to you? Yeah, he did, actually. I'm trying to pull it up. Um, and, and they're yeah, calling it Anthidophorus. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pulling it up, Rob, right now. But I thought, I thought we weren't doing any more uh, commercials, but now we are. No, I, I just took a break. I took a breather. It wasn't an official commercial. It was just like, take a breath. I'm giving Dr. Batar a chance to actually open an article and read it. He's very fast when he does that. And, and we had to eat some more chocolate. Right, that know, too. Oh, yeah. my God. That's not even fair. You're talking about eating chocolate, and then I'm having to deal with the Internet that I can't even pull up the article on, and you guys are eating <laughs> chocolate. That's not fair. Oh, yeah. We had some Orange Dream vanilla cashew butter, dark dark chocolate, all organic, creamy as can be, and no, no milk, no dairy in it at all. It's amazing. Mm. So... Yeah, you've been missing out on that. You're rubbing it in, aren't you? What? You're just rubbing it in right now. I am. I am. You'll get, you'll okay, get yours. I'll send you the book and some chocolate. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I, feel, I feel a little bit better. So I'm stalling for you. Can you open up the article? If they're like blaming Candida Oris, and they're saying, oh, it's a mysterious new infection. It's drug resistant. I'm thinking, really? Is, is it a mystery? Really? Yeah, I'm reading on a neonatal unit in Venezuela. swept through a hospital in Spain. 
British Medical Center to shut down its intensive care unit and taken root in India, Pakistan, and South Africa. We we actually have people right now from Spain that are on listening to us right now. I know that for sure on Facebook here. So but that's interesting. Um, but they say the headline, a mysterious infection spanning the globe in a climate of secrecy. You know, who's keeping the secret here? I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time and we recognize that you know, doing these medical drugs, however, that might be considered life-saving in certain circumstances, but the overuse and abuse has created, uh, you know, the perfect storm, so to speak, for the proliferation of these microorganisms that in a healthy person, they, could, they can never sustain themselves. But in a weakened person, a diseased and toxic person, again, the terrain has been altered. Now all kinds of crazy stuff is growing. Well, this is why it says right here, Robert, this is, this is the, the kicker. It says... Scientists say, this is the reason for this, uh, this article, scientists say that unless more effective new medicines are developed and unnecessary use of antimicrobial drug is sharply curbed. So they're actually acknowledging their own inadequacy. That's good. Uh, mm-hmm. Risk will spread to healthier populations. So at least they acknowledge that. But I think this is the first part, more effective new medicines are developed. So this is a plug to get more drugs out there in the market. But at least they did acknowledge the indiscriminate use of antibiotics creating um, part and parcel of that issue. Well, and then they say it'll spread to healthier populations. Is that true? I mean, or are healthier populations more resistant, resilient to acquisition of these so-called superbugs that have just adapted to address these antimicrobials? Well, I think it would spread to the healthy population as far as the resistance aspect. As far as susceptibility, of course, that's not going to have anything to do with it. If you're healthy, you're not going to be susceptible to whatever it is. But it would... uh, You have to remember now what's the definition of health, right? We've talked about this before. So absence of disease is assumed to be health, and that is not the case. If you were to draw this on a horizontal line, uh, on the left, let's say uh, all the way to the left is disease, and health is defined all the way to the right. But that's not true. Absence of disease is not health. That's actually in the middle, uh, thriving and optimum health would be on the far right. Absence of disease would be in the middle, and then on the far left would be would be pathology. And so I think that's part and parcel of the problem with they're defining as health. They say, well, it's going to spread to healthy people, um, and yet the definition of health is this absence of disease. Those people are still unhealthy. They just haven't had the manifestation of the disease yet. You follow me? Yes. Yeah. It's an important distinction to make because they're fear-mongering. To create what? Uh, an environment that fosters more investment in antimicrobial drugs. They've already screwed up the first 10 rounds of them. And they go, give us some more powerful chemo to go after it. And again, they, even though they acknowledge the law of the terrain, they disavow it as fast as they acknowledge it. Yep, that's exactly right. That's, I actually saw that article somewhere else, and I was thinking about sending it to you, but I was in the process of... Um, traveling and I wasn't able to do that. It's interesting that also they, they quoted some estimates from Washington University, my alma mater, and the, the death toll uh, from these resistant infections at 162,000. They said worldwide fatalities from resistant infections estimated at 700,000. <clears> it's interesting that they're they're talking about that. Now, of course, comparing that to cancer and heart disease is minuscule, but still. Yeah. Well, there's one last uh, article here. I don't know how far we can get into it, but I'm curious about it too. If you got to read it, it's called "Is the Sugar Rush a Myth?" Right? They say if you if you hit a lot of refined carbs and sugars, you you get some kind of physical or psychological high. Mm-hmm. And now they're disputing that. 
I don't know what's going on with this article, what they're claiming or not claiming. Obviously, if sugar, refined, instantaneous, accessible sugar hits your system, you're going to have some kind of physiological response. Oh, you're going to have a, a big physiological response. Uh, I mean, what's the basis of the article trying to say that there's, there's not an issue with sugar? I mean, it, it, yeah, what they're saying is, it is common knowledge that consuming a large quantity of sugar can give you a physical and psychological high, okay? Yeah. But a recent analysis concludes that, in fact, the reverse might be true. So it isn't that they're claiming there's no physiological response, but they're talking about the depressive effect, not the lifting effect. Yeah, but, I mean, it's it's like any other drug. You know, you take it, it gives you a high, and then you come down from it. And then talk about the, so I think it's the same thing sugar does. That's one reason parents will... You know, grandparents, once once their children end up having kids, now grandparents are going to take their revenge on their kids by feeding the grandkids sugar so that when they go back <laughs> to the parents, yeah. you know, they're, they're bouncing from wall to wall. But, yeah, uh, the, the, the drop can only occur if there's a, if there's a peak. So it doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense if they're talking about the – everybody knows that sugar is going it, to – it's a it, – it's a um, – it is a drug, actually. Sugar – is probably one of the most most abused and excitatory drugs that are out there. Dangerous so, and addicting as it is. I mean, people are, you know, stuck in a, a rut, a pattern. They can't seem to, you know, get beyond it, and they have to get reached for that next. So I often talk about it. Now, of course, for me, I look at the deficiencies in the body. You and I, we've talked about the chromium molecule. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it's a big part of this. When you lack a certain key mineral, it's deficient, and there are reasons it's deficient. We can track back. And you replenish it, the body, the metabolism, the interaction. Of course, we still would say stop eating the refined sugars because they're devoid of minerals. That's that's an imbalanced food or a toxic poisonous food. So I look at these things and I say there's explanation. It's not as mysterious as the doctors would have us believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would completely agree with that. And the thing with sugar, too, is that um, it it causes a desensitization in the palate. So the more sugar you eat, the more insensitive you become to the sugar and the more sugar you need to eat to get the taste of the sweetness that you're looking for yeah and this has never been more prevalent than you know i should drink six a six pack of sprite during each er shift wow i was uh doing er medicine so um 1999 was my last er shift but i had already i think probably like 1994 95 i'd stopped drinking as much sprite but uh, i started drinking club soda just carbonated water you know seltzer and i can tell you that it only took maybe a month for me to get used to it. And after that, since that point, I may have had, since 1996, I would say that 23 years, I might have had one ginger ale or two ginger ales, um, maybe maybe a Coke and a Sprite. And every time it was like a sip, and then I yeah. couldn't drink the rest of it. Too much, uh, too much. Way, Listen, way too speaking much. of too much, Dr. Batar, we're out of time. Uh, but if you have a few minutes extra, we can go into extra innings in just a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, uh, Liana Werner Gray, thank you for being here on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And Dr. Batar, uh, should we let... Liana, because it made it easier for me to look at Robert. Yes. It's my, it's, I, he, <laughs> he wasn't looking at me at all. It was all well, Liana, Liana was my unofficial date at Truth About Cancer two years ago. That's right. The unofficial date that time, right? At the Truth About Cancer gala or something? Yeah, I think we were seated um, uh, next to each other. Nice. Thanks to the Bollingers. Yeah, well done. Well done. <laughs> so with that, uh, Liana, you know how I end every hour of the show, what I say? The power to heal is yours. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Scott Belcher. Robert Scott Belcher.